Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about trust falling into the universe, a transformational adventure with my guest, Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati. She is the author of Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. Sadvi served on the United Nations Advisory Council on Religion and on the steering committees of the International Partnership for Religion and Sustainable Development, as well as the Moral Imperative to End Extreme Poverty, a campaign by the United Nations and World Bank. Sadvi has lived for the past 25 years at the Parmath Nikitan Ashram in Rishikesh, India, where she oversees a variety of humanitarian projects, teaches meditations, lectures, writes, counsels individuals and families, and serves as a unique female voice of spiritual leadership throughout India and the world. Sadvi, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you here again. Thank you, Lisa. It's such a joy to be back with you and with your whole community. Oh, thank you. I want to just give our listeners who might not have heard the first episode that we did many months ago, I think it was even a couple of years ago, about uh, your journey, because you have a unique story, as we all do, but yours in particular might open some eyes. Sure. Well, yeah, when we spoke, it was over the summer, this past summer. Um, so much has happened since then. It was right at the time that my that my memoir, Hollywood to the Himalayas, was published. And it's such, you know, every single time I share about the story, it's it's like a brand new experience because the way that it flows through and impacts and comes out is just different every time. But the the short story, the gist of the story is I grew up in Los Angeles in Hollywood, quite literally. I grew up in Studio City in the what's called the Hollywood Hills, just up in the hills from Universal Studios on one side and, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, et cetera, on the other side, and lived in that world through all of my youth and adolescence. And I had a very, a very privileged life in so many ways. I come from a family of great opportunity, great privilege. There was nothing that I was lacking in any way. You know, it's, it's that life that if you look at from the outside, you say, oh my God, this girl has everything. 
I then left from LA to go to Stanford University where I did my studies. So again, it was this, this situation of privilege, of opportunity, of looking like I had everything set and perfect. And on the outside, I really did. And yet there are two critical pieces here. One is the general critical piece, which is that no matter how many of these things we have, no matter how much money we have, no matter how much opportunity or how much privilege or, or which places we're getting degrees or titles or careers from, nonetheless, none of that actually provides us with happiness, <laughs> which is why so many of the wealthiest and most you know, quote unquote, successful people, tragically, are struggling with issues of alcoholism, issues of drug addictions, issues of eating disorders, issues of depression and anxiety, because that doesn't give us what we all think it would. You know, most of us think, oh, God, if I only had, you know, the money to do this or that, if I only had this opportunity, then I would be happy. And so on the general level, I learned very early on from my life, from my parents, from my parents' friends, from my friends' parents, that nothing external correlated with internal happiness. And then on the personal level, in the midst of this glamour and opportunity, I also was really struggling. I had been sexually abused as a very young child. I then had been abandoned both by my biological father. And that led to obviously a lot of trauma, a lot of issues. As I grew, I developed severe bulimia and was in and out of hospitals and treatment centers and therapy and whatnot. And Yet, in the midst of all of that, I continued to manage my life. I continued to go to school, to graduate from Stanford, to get in the midst of a PhD program, to get straight A's, to really succeed on all of these external levels while I managed my pain, my suffering, my trauma, my struggle, my addiction, eating disorders, all of that. And I really thought that that was the, the aim of life, to manage your difficulties and manage your life and manage your jobs and your education and your relationships and your food intake and all of that. Because that seemed like what everyone I knew was doing. People were managing their lives. Some were managing better than others, but that's where it was. And I went to India at the age of 25. Sadly, in retrospect, not for, sadly for my ego, not because I was on a spiritual quest and was looking for something deeper. If I had known this existed, I would have certainly searched night and day for it but I didn't know it existed. No one in the world I grew up in ever said to me, 
you know, managing your life is not the highest goal. There's actually something beyond that. You know, there's this, this thing called spirituality and freedom and bliss and joy, and it can be yours. So I wasn't looking for it, but I had gotten married right out of undergraduate at 22 and my husband was on a spiritual quest and he was looking for a guru and he wanted to go to India. And I was a very strict, ardent vegetarian. And I knew that Indians did vegetarian food very well and that there were never any mistakes about getting fish or, you know, other meat products or even eggs. I was a vegan into into my food. And so I agreed to go to keep my husband happy and because I knew that I would at least be able to eat really happily on our <laughs> couple 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 month trip. And it's so funny, you know, 25 years later to say, yeah, I went because I liked the food. But ultimately that's that's where it is. And it's so funny because, you know, so many of us think that for the great transformations, for the great experiences of our life to find our purpose, we need to be planning it all, that we need to know it, we need to plan it, we need to put it into action. Whereas for me, it's really all been about trust and faith and surrender into a a divine presence, a divine flow, a divine intelligence that makes seeds sprout into trees, that makes flowers open their petals to the sun, that makes caterpillars know how to weave cocoons and when to come out of them. And so, yeah, I went to India thinking, all right, it was just going to be a couple months sort of adventure in which I got to eat happily. And it turned out to have transformed my life. Rishikesh, which is this beautiful, beautiful, holy city right in the lap of the Himalayas, was the first place we went. And it's right on the banks of the Ganga River, what is called, you know, the Ganges River, but in India they call it the Ganga. And right on the banks of the flowing Ganga River. And when I stood on the banks of this river, not even knowing at the time that the river is considered holy. I had this extraordinary experience of being in the presence of the divine. And I was never a religious person. I was never even one of those people who say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And yet there it was, it happened. Standing there on the banks of Ganga, I had this incredibly powerful experience of the presence of the divine outside of me, all around me, in everything, and also inside of me, as me. And that idea of separation between me and the rest of the universe and the divine, that separation just dissolved. Suddenly there was no separation and it just it was all me and it was all beautiful and it was all divine. And that was for me, the real turning point of 
wow. I mean, I just, I knew, wow, this is where I meant to be. This is where I meant to stay. Wow. And I, all I could say for days was just, oh my God, it's so beautiful. And, you know, as you know, in Hollywood to the Himalayas, I go into all of the the story and the details of where I was and what happened and how I found the ashram where I now live in. So I won't, I won't go into all of those here, but just to say that it really was a trust fall into the universe and an awareness that I was being held and carried and guided and that all I needed to do was trust. And whether it was hearing voices telling me where to stay, whether it was getting my feet literally glued to the ground, whether it was walking into the waters of the river, literally walking into the river and offering, offering all of my pain and anger and grudges and identification as the one who was abused, who was abandoned, offering all of that into the river. It all stemmed from that, that just trust fall into the universe, that vow that I had made to keep my heart open. And it's been, you know, 25 and a half years now. And it's been such, such an extraordinary blessing. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati. We're talking about her book and just a good conversation. The book is Hollywood to the Himalayas. And I am saying it in the westernized way. I'm so sorry. The journey of healing and transformation. When we come back, we'll talk about what it means to trust fall into the universe. To learn more, please visit sadvig.org on Twitter at Sadvi Bhagawati on Facebook Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati and on Instagram Sadvig. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Before we pause, let's talk about the definition of professional these days. On LinkedIn, important conversations are happening around what it means to be a professional. Right now, LinkedIn members are talking about priorities like flexibility around where we work, when we work, how we work, and even taking time to step away from work to take care of our mental health and family's well-being. Because life matters, and this is not a dress rehearsal. And the thing that matters most should not stunt our career development and growth. In fact, our experiences add value and impact how we show up for work and life. LinkedIn members are putting what matters most to them in their titles with things like podcast host slash activist slash mom. I'm going to update my profile to say podcast host slash positive psychology expert slash servant leader slash optimal lifestyle management consultant slash lover of life slash mom. Professional is ours to define and our authentic self is our best professional self. So if your LinkedIn doesn't reflect who you really are, Update your job title and let the world see the real and valuable you. And join the conversations redefining professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, welcome professional. Now let's take that pause. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back. 
Here's a reminder before we rejoin the conversation. Home should be a place that brings as much joy as possible. Home should be a hub for happiness that's a canvas for connection and memory making. And these days, my house is operating as a hybrid castle, sanctuary, office, gym, workshop, recording studio, boardroom, creativity laboratory, and base camp hangout. Home is where I get to express myself as a designer and host of good times. By the way, I'm in love with my Joybird stunningly beautiful retro Xavier desk. Make your home a happy haven. Get ready for Joybird's Buy More, Save More sale. Joybird offers crisp, modern, customizable furnishings and accessories for every space. Joybird is furniture that fits your style in a wide variety of vibrant and durable designs. Don't know where to start? Joybird's design specialists are standing by to help make your vision a reality. You can even book a virtual showroom appointment and order a fabric swatch kit all for free. Ordering online has never been easier or more fun. From design to customer care, Joybird has you covered. Joybird stands by its quality and craftsmanship. If it's not everything you'd hope for, send it back within 90 days. Each piece is made with incredible care using responsibly sourced materials that are free of harmful chemicals. Joybird is also committed to a more sustainable future by partnering with groups like One Tree Planted to help conserve and restore Earth's precious natural resources. Simply put, Joybird furniture is made with top-notch stain and scratch-resistant fabrics and comes with a limited lifetime warranty. Joybird Furniture can handle anything your family throws at it, literally. Create a space that brings you joy with Joybird. Visit joybird.com slash happiness and get 30% off your purchase. That's 30% off at joybird.com slash happiness. Now let's get back to it. Sadhvi, you, you told the story of your life prior to that huge turning point where you trust fell into the universe. And I would love to turn the conversation to how one might embrace this step in their own lives. You know, that we're all seeking uh, something on our journeys of this lifetime and how we might be able to, as you put it, elevate adversity. So there's so much around this because when we face difficulty, Obviously, we need to be engaged. And when I talk about trust fall into the universe, it's not complacency. It's not giving up. We misunderstand surrender as though somehow I have given up. I've, you know, thrown in the towel and I've realized there's no hope. It's all over. And so I, you know, just give up. That's not really what surrender means. And it's definitely not what I mean by the trust fall. The trust fall, I think about it also when, if you've ever been in a, a public swimming pool where Lots of families are there and, you know, people with little kids. One of the things that I love seeing, my parents' uh, place has a big a big pool. And what I love watching is you'll see all the time mothers and fathers in the pool and a little toddler, two, three-ish, 
on the edge of the pool, you know, with their floaties on and the bathing suits on and the <laughs> yes. mom or dad inside, inside the pool is saying, jump, jump, and is holding out their arms and saying, jump. And the kid is scared. And the kid is kind of running back and forth up and down the edge of the pool. And the mom or dad is like, jump, jump, holding out the arms. And the kid is like, uh, 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 you know, back and forth, running up and down, just scared. And finally, finally, the kid jumps. And of course, the mom or dad catches them. And after that split second of fear in the jump, the moment they are in that arms, they squeal in delight. I mean, they are ecstatic. And of course, what do they want? They want to do it again. And then it becomes again, again. And then they get put out on the edge of the pool and they jump again, again, until finally mom or dad is like, okay, enough, you know, more tomorrow. And I love watching that because that for me really embodies what I'm talking about in terms of the trust fall is we're not saying forget it. We're not giving in or giving up. We're not conceding defeat. No, what we're doing is we're saying, I recognize that there are arms that are open and outstretched and waiting to hold me waiting to catch me, waiting to guide me. But I need, I need to jump. Yeah. You need and to I take need a step. The first step. Exactly. <laughs> a step, a step exactly. And a step with faith, because if that child never leaps off the edge of the pool, they'll never have the experience of being in the water. And that's what happens to a lot of us is we live our lives metaphorically on that edge of the pool, yeah. never jumping, never leaping, never stepping, never having that experience of the truth of who we are, of deep joy, of deep freedom. And so when I talk about the trust fall, it's the universe is there to catch you, to hold you. That's, that's what it is there for. That's what you are there for. You are not separate from the universe. And in the same way that if you look at nature, I mean, I love taking lessons from nature. You look at anything in nature and there's an intelligence that flows through it of how to live, of what to do. You know, my, my favorite example of this is the tree where 99.99999% of trees grow straight up. And yet every once in a while you see trees that grow sideways because in order to get their light, they need to grow sideways. That if they grew straight up, the canopy of the tree or some building or whatever it may be is blocking their light. And so there is that intuition, that inner awareness, inner knowledge that makes it grow sideways, even though every other tree it's ever seen is growing straight up. Every tree around it is straight up. It grows sideways because it knows that's my light. And so the trust fall into the universe is I'm being called to grow sideways. Yeah. I, I, 
I don't know why. I've never seen anyone go sideways. <laughs> I have no, I, I have absolutely no guarantee that this sideways thing is going to work. But I know that going straight up, I'm going to suffocate and die because there is no light and I need light to live. And so this is the direction I'm being pulled in. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it fully. That's the trust fall. It's, it's the caterpillar, you know, having spent its life surrounded by millipedes and worms and other creatures who are destined to continue to live on the ground. But it gets that signal or that sign that says, climb the tree, weave the cocoon, jump out and fly. And it does, even though it's never learned how to do it. It's never seen anybody. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't understand that the butterfly overhead is, you know, my uncle who climbed the tree and never came back. It doesn't know that. But nonetheless, it climbs and then it weaves the cocoon and then it flies because it trusts. And for all of the magic in our lives to happen, we have to trust. And yet it is a very difficult thing for many people to do so. And this is where I think your story is of great value to us because things happen. We all have stories and your journey was you had the story and then you realized from this is my perspective from what you shared that once you got to India, you saw that there was a bigger story. Mm-hmm. And, I, and in fact, I, re- I realized that my story wasn't even true anymore. I was carrying an identification of a being who no longer existed. And I mean that on the most practical scientific level. Every single cell of our being regenerates some faster than others, but within a period of eight or nine years, every single cell of your being has regenerated. There was no cell of my being that got off a plane in New Delhi that had actually been abused or abandoned. But I was carrying that identification as this is who I am. And so what... What it enabled me to realize was several things. Number one, that I actually had a choice that living in anger and pain and grudges and addiction and identification as the victim, that I had a choice. That was one option, sure, but it was not the only option. Yeah. And to recognize, to really recognize I am the one consciously carrying that that identity into today. Yes, the abuse happened. Yes, it was horrible. Yes, it should never have happened. Yes, I was in, you know, years of therapy to go through that. And yes, it was not happening to me today. It did not happen to any piece of who I am today other than the way that I chose to carry it in my mind into today, the way that I chose 
to continue to perpetrate abuse against myself. And we don't realize that we do that, but we do. You know, someone hurts us once or even 10 times or 50 times. But we are the ones who carry that pain into every minute and every moment of our lives. We become the perpetrators of it. And I had become the perpetrator of my own abuse, of constantly re-identifying, re-reminding myself, keeping myself stuck as the one who was abused, the one who was bulimic. And here's that quick pause. We'll be right back. Hey, hang on. Before we pause, I want to share my secret guilt-free playtime pleasure. When I've got a few minutes to spare, I love to amuse myself with Best Fiends, my favorite casual mobile game for grown-ups. Best Fiends is the best action-packed brain-boosting puzzle game on the planet. Best Fiends is my go-to digital play pal, and I'm happily hooked. And if you're anything like me, you will be too. I love playing Best Fiends with friends in different cities. It's a way for us to connect, blow off some steam, and share some laughs. Not to brag or anything, but I'm about to hit level 7,007 and soar beyond. The fun never ends at Best Fiends because there's always fresh content and new challenging adventures to conquer. I pinky swear you'll never be bored or run out of goals to achieve. Don't blame me if you end up kind of obsessed, need a little digital distraction or some mindful mindlessness, stress less and play more. Come join me and more than 100 million downloads for a mental pick-me-up. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now let's get back to it. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Sadhvi Bhagawati Saraswati and I are continuing the conversation about trust falling into the universe, a transformational adventure. Let's return to the conversation. It reminds me of uh, Byron Katie's, you know, the work where she asks this fabulous question, who would you be without that story mm, or your story? Exactly. Who would you be without your story? You know, that if you shed that story and as you talk about elevating the adversity, what can you become? What can you do with that? Absolutely. You know, here's, here's a way to think about it. And I realize this makes a little bit of light of severe trauma. And I obviously don't mean to do that, but it's a, it's a helpful metaphor. And especially since the truth is that what most people are struggling with is not severe abuse and trauma. Yes, that happens more than it should, but the, the challenges, the struggles, the difficulties that most people are facing isn't, thankfully by God's grace, that type of severe abuse. It's much more the, the betrayal, the lies, the Existential abuse. Existential drama. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yes. And and so my favorite metaphor about this is think about you have a wonderful friend 
who comes over to your house right after you've bought this brand new white couch. And you seat your friend on the couch lovingly, politely. You go into the kitchen, you make your friend a beautiful, fresh, piping hot cup of coffee. And you go and you give it to your friend. And then you sit down on the couch next to your friend. And what does your friend do? Takes the coffee and spills it on your couch. Now, maybe they did it on purpose. Maybe they did it by accident. Either way, they have spilled the coffee on your couch. They then stand up and they walk out of your house. And the question is, what is the first thing you do? Do you chase them down the block? Do you take pictures of the stain, the black stain on your white couch and post it on social media? Do you call a mutual friend and say, you're not gonna believe what so-and-so did? No, the very first thing you're gonna do, assuming you care about your brand new couch, is you're gonna clean your couch because you recognize <laughs> yes. that if you don't, that coffee is gonna stain and that you've got a very, a very short critical window of time to get that stain off your couch before it becomes permanent. And, you know, however you want to deal with this person later on, you'll deal with them later on, but you are not going to turn it into a drama in the moment. You're going to clean your couch. And what you're definitely not going to do is leave the stain there to fester and to eventually attract, you know, ants and worms and to stink and bacteria and whatnot, because it's your couch and it's in your house. And all of the festering and all of the bacteria and all of the ants and all of the worms and all of the smell are what you are going to have to live with. And we all intuitively understand that, which is why we would immediately clean the couch. But you think, well, if we understand it about our couch, why don't we understand it about our hearts? And yeah. why when someone hurts our hearts, stains our hearts, knowingly, unknowingly, on purpose, by accident, why don't we immediately clean our hearts, forgive, let go, do any one of dozens of things that are going to free me from the anger in that moment, whether it's the music I'm going to listen to, the beautiful walk I'm going to take, the journaling I'm going to do, the gratitude practice I'm going to do, the volunteer work of helping someone else I'm going to do, whatever my quickest, most powerful path to freedom in the moment, joy in the moment, why don't we do that immediately when someone hurts us or when the universe disappoints us? I just want to jump in here for one second. I mean, it's, it's a very challenging thing to do when we are, when we are hurt or we are trespassed, you know, because there's, there's really a trespassing that occurs, whether it is an abusive situation or somebody takes advantage of us, uh, our generosity, our skills, what have you. I think that becomes the challenge is that we attach to what we feel we should have gotten versus what we are going to do about it. Absolutely. And th this is where you'll remember going back when you asked about the trust fall. And yes. I said, it's not, it's not complacency. Yes. 
what I'm talking about does not mean become a doormat and just be a happy doormat. I'm not talking about being, you know, an angry doormat versus a happy doormat. Spirituality does not make us doormats. It does not make us complacent. It does not allow the world to walk all over us. It doesn't make us punching bags. Absolutely, action needs to be taken in whatever way it can be to change the situation, to ensure that your value, your preciousness, not just value, but your absolute exquisiteness, your preciousness is seen is valued, is honored, is celebrated. And if that means never inviting that person into your house again, so be it. If it means changing jobs, so be it. If it means changing anything that needs to be changed about a situation that can be changed, change it. But when you are in a situation like the spilled coffee. You can't undo it. You can't right. rewind life. It's done. And what a lot what a lot of us do is we ruminate as though we could rewind life. And we can't. What we need to look at is here I am now in a situation with this coffee stain on my couch. I do not want to live with the stain on my couch. I do not want to have to buy a new couch. I'm going to clean it because my couch matters to me. And in the same way, my heart matters to me. And whatever someone has done is not worthy of my peace and my joy. If I sit and I ruminate and I become depressed and miserable or I drown my sorrows in a six pack or drugs or a cheesecake, what I'm saying is, that I am willingly offering up my joy, my peace, my bliss, my freedom on the altar of someone else's ignorance, anger, fear, pain, ego. And I'm not prepared to do that anymore. People may be ignorant, arrogant, anger, angry, egotistical. People may be all sorts of things in the midst of their karmic dramas, but I am no longer prepared to sacrifice willingly, consciously, my freedom on the altar of someone else's karmic drama. And cleaning your couch in that moment, cleaning your house, your heart in that moment, disconnects your karmic experience from someone else's. It says, I don't, I don't want my experience here on planet earth in this moment and the upcoming moments to be chained to your karmic drama. And if I don't forgive, if I don't let go, that's what I'm saying. Until you come back and apologize, until you get back here and clean the couch, until you, you know, explain to me why you spilled it, until we really do, you know, a full postmortem of the coffee <laughs> on the couch situation, I'm not going to let it go. Well, that's saying I would like my emotional state 
my freedom to be chained to your karmic drama. And that's just not a a wise or practical way of experiencing the fullness of our our joy and our freedom. And so it really becomes just a very practical choice of I'm going to clean my heart because, you know, whatever, whatever drama they're going through that led them to do that and then walk away, you know, if they're a close friend, I'll certainly talk to them about it and see what's going on, but not before I've cleaned my couch. And in the same way, not before I've cleaned my heart, I'm not going to have that conversation with them where I need them to apologize or explain or do something in order for me to be happy or peaceful. Cause it means my state of mind of heart of being is contingent upon your words, your actions, your karmic drama. And then I'm not free. And not only are we not free, we have given away our power, right? And, exactly. and we're not liberated. Exactly. So yeah. I hear what you're saying and I, I get it. And, and it's hard, of course. Of course, it's Absolutely a practice, it's right? I think really what you're saying is that we, we strive to live in this way and then we practice and sometimes we'll get it. Sometimes we won't. Some days will be better than others. But unless we endeavor to walk that path, we can never really be free. We're going to take a quick pause and we'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Sadhvi Bhagawati Saraswati and I are continuing that conversation about trust falling into the universe, a transformational adventure. Let's return to the journey. Absolutely, Lisa. And what I would say also is cultivate awareness and cultivate the, the fact that you've got the power to choose. I'm not telling you what to choose. But recognize that you have the power to choose, that you are not a light switch or a light bulb that someone else switches on yeah. and off at whim. We have the power to choose how we are going to feel in each moment. And you can choose joy. You can choose love. Or you can choose anger. You can choose resentment. You can choose attachment to someone else's words, actions. 
and that's up to us. And and again, I'm not I'm not the you know spiritual police telling you which way you have to choose, but we know that awareness and consciousness are the fundamental building blocks of not only a spiritual life but of a full life, a joyful life, a true life. If I'm not conscious and aware, I'm not able to manifest anything. And so I would say, allow awareness to be your first step. Just be aware in those moments when anger is brewing. Allow yourself to be aware that you have a choice. And you have a choice to hold on to the anger, to allow it to imprint upon you, to become a grudge, or you have a choice to let it go. And of course, your mind is going to say, well, no, I can't because my God, this person, did you see what they did? I can't right. believe it. <laughs> and, and just be aware of, you know, the mind doing its thing, but to recognize that you've got a choice. There is an alternative and you can choose that. Well, in this choice making process comes a an opportunity for ego management as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we you know, the ego is I think about it like a role. You know, it's got a mask, it's got a costume, it's got a script, it's got a storyline. And when we think about managing our ego, managing our anger, you know, first of all, it's funny because we usually talk about managing things that we, we want to hold on to, you know, we manage our money, <laughs> we manage our estates. Um, the, the ego and our, our anger are certainly not things that I want to, um, hold on to with with nearly nearly as much attention or intention as you want to hold on to the money in your bank for example but when we talk about it it's it's critical to realize that the more stuck we are in that role the less freedom we have to actually experience the joy of life and if I am prepared to just keep living as this mask, as this role, reciting the same lines over and over again, getting angry at the same triggers over and over again, because that's my story. And by the way, remember, of course, I did this. I did this for 25 years. I would get angry at things or hurt at things very frequently. I had a lot of issues around abandonment, especially. And every time it arose, my response was, well, of course, I mean, of course, I'm going to be angry at you for this perceived abandonment, because I mean, I was abandoned as a kid. And like, yeah. that's my story. So <laughs> you need, you need to adapt, because I've got this issue. And the awareness, the realization that I've had in the second 25 years of my life is, I have a choice. Yes, I was abandoned as a child. And yes, I can carry that through my life. And yes, I don't have to. And yes, I can let it go. I can 
feel deep compassion and love for the eight-year-old girl who was told by her father that he never wanted to see her again. And I can have great compassion for the 50-year-old woman who does not want to live her life as that eight-year-old child and who does not want to live her life afraid of abandonment and therefore unwilling to take risks, unwilling to trust, unwilling to love? And can I anchor myself, my attention, my awareness, my compassion, as much in the 50-year-old woman I am today who deserves to be free, regardless of the craziness that my biological father was swimming in at that time, well, that doesn't, that shouldn't deprive me of freedom for the rest of my life. And so there's compassion for him as well. And in that compassion for him and that forgiveness for him, I become free to have compassion for myself, my capital S self. Yeah. Who isn't a victim. And that's where the healing of the dis-ease takes place. Of course. You know, and I think we're, we're all of us as humans, we're, we're hardwired to avoid suffering. And yet when we get in that victim consciousness cycle, we're swimming in it. We're stewing in the juices of suffering. Absolutely. And, you know, and it, the whole spectrum, somebody spills coffee on your couch to you were abused to everything in between. And it's yes. And right. It's we, we, we hold on to it. We, we are the metaphoric, like leave the stain on my couch so that everyone who comes over, I can tell them, look what this guy did to me. I made him a nice cup of coffee with love. He then spilled it on my couch and walked away. Can you believe it? And I have a story to tell everyone who comes over and, you know, I can take pictures and I can post them on my social media and I can tell everyone what I have had to suffer from. And every time I walk in that room and smell the stench, I can relive my anger at that theoretical friend who stained my couch. That's certainly an option. Or I can clean the couch and move on with my life and be free. And that's, that's the possibility that we all have. And it is not, it is not about repression. It is not about suppression. It is not about denial. It is not about spiritual bypass. We're not talking about pretending things didn't happen. Yeah. We're talking about fully aware and conscious decision-making about the direction of my attention and intention and the power and freedom that I have to direct my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, and my awareness, and therefore my life. And there it is. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, oh, it is a, it yeah. sounds so simple, you know, and, and, and it is on the one hand. It's very complicated on the other because it really re requires the surrender of one's position, you know, you know, stamping one's feet, hands on the hips, finger wagging, 
all of that, it, it, it's saying, whoa, hang on. The only image that I can deal with here is what the one I'm seeing in the mirror. So let's go polish that. Absolutely. I would, I would say it is definitely simple, but it is <laughs> not, not easy. No. And it's a practice, you know, the Sanskrit word of sadhana, which is used sort of as an umbrella term for meditation, yoga, all of our spiritual activities. It literally is translated as spiritual practice. It is a practice. And every day, like a flower, the petals of our heart open more and more. Every day we become more and more willing to let them open and more and more willing to be conscious co-creators of our own lives. And that's really what it's about is I'm co-creating this. Yes, some of it is what you can call karma uh, or you can just call history. Either way, it's the stuff that you can't change. It's the stuff yeah. that you can't rewind and redo. You can't look a different way, you know, in terms of the actual structure of yourself that's purely genetic. You can't redo your childhood. You can't, you know, undo things that have been done. There's a lot that's, that is, yeah. you know, set in stone and there's so much that isn't there's so much that isn't from the biological actual expression of our genes to every single thought we have in our minds that ends up being that vehicle that we get on that takes us to where we're going because every thought is a vehicle it takes us someplace and every time we have a thought we have to decide do I want to go where this thought is leading me? And if not, just like you got on the wrong bus, get off. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because thoughts and feelings are not facts, right? They come, they go, but they're not necessarily real. No, they're, wa they're, they're waves, yeah. they're waves. And if you, if you practice awareness in meditation of just being aware of the thoughts, you know, you sit down to meditate and you anchor the awareness in your breath, maybe in a mantra, depending on your meditation, maybe in watching a candle flame, maybe in the recitation of a prayer. But what you'll notice is very quickly, you know, thoughts come. You are meditating and you smell, this, you know, neighbors making blueberry muffins and the smell wafts through your window and into your meditation room. And Suddenly you smell blueberry muffins and then you're like, oh my God, I would love blueberry muffins. God, I remember my aunt Lucy used to make blueberry muffins. She was <laughs> so nice. I wish, I wish we had spent more time with her, you know, but my mom and aunt Lucy never got along. And, you know, why was I the one who had to be the victim of this fight between my mom and aunt Lucy? You know, I was deprived of this wonderful aunt. God, you know, my friend Brian got to spend his whole life with his aunt. I remember that they were so close. Why did I not get that wonderful aunt? And, you know, a smell of blueberry muffins. Right, which is and just suddenly, a smell of blueberry muffins. It's just, just, just a sensation. And suddenly, not only are you no longer meditating, but you are seething in anger and pain and victimization of the fact that, you know, your mom's, 
not so great relationship with Aunt Lucy, you know, deprived you of that. The the alternative is you just notice it. Ah, huh. blueberry muffins. And then you go back to your breath. Huh. Ah, and that's just the thought. It arises, and whatever the thought is that arises, you just notice it. And then you go back to the breath, but you don't hook the awareness into it and let it carry you like a vehicle to, in this case of Aunt Lucy and mom, you know, anger and frustration and pain and longing when it was just a, a blueberry muffin. Which the great lesson here in this is that we can do this and save ourselves needless suffering. Absolutely. Not all suffering, but the needless part of the suffering. Well, you know, suffering reminds us that we have a human heart. And so I'm not I'm not against suffering in its in its entirety. I think every once in a while the that experience, you know, you drive through the streets of India and you see children begging on the side of the roads and you suffer. Your heart suffers. And I think that's beautiful suffering. You know, we love someone, we lose them, we suffer. It's beautiful suffering. It means, it means we're, we're alive. It means we're loving. It means we're caring. But the needless suffering. Yes. The the suffering that says I have no choice. I am a victim. You have done this to me. That's suffering that takes our power away. Savi, I'm thinking this is a great place to pause, at least for now. Food for thought to challenge the listeners to examine ways in their lives where suffering might have played uh, an unwelcome participant. And uh, to learn more about Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati, go to the website for her book, HollywoodToTheHimalayas.com, on Twitter at Sadvi Bhagawati, Facebook Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati, and on Instagram you can find her at Sadvi G. Always a pleasure to have these kinds of visits together because they really are food for thought and uh, very, very inspiring to look at ways that we can transform and heal ourselves. Sadvi, thanks for hanging out with me today. It's been so wonderful, Lisa. I'm so happy to be here with you. Me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen on behalf of my guest, Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please remember to go out and rock your day and be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.